What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Hi, everybody. Here's what's ahead. Stocks are on pace for their best August in decades, so payback is coming, right? But one major investor says there is no real alternative to this market for investors. So are we setting up for a surprise upside September? We'll dig into that. Plus, out of stock, with so much of our work and schooling being done by video these days, consumers are on the hunt for webcams more than ever. The CEO of Logitech, whose stock is on a tear, joins us to talk about their race to keep up with demand. And the final luxury frontier, chips and spacks, the Mets money drama, and tracking the mail. It's all ahead today. But we do begin with the markets. A big day for the Dow. Dom Chu is here with more. Dom. Lots of changes, Kelly. And lo and behold, stocks actually do go down. Mm. It's been a long time since we've talked about markets that go down. But they do, in fact, go down. Look at the Dow Industrials today. Down 215 points. At the lows of the session, by the way, we were down roughly 290 just to give you some relative sense of the intraday trading range in the Dow. But nonetheless, we'll get into some of the changes that are happening today there. The S&P 500 relatively flat there, 3,500 still holding above that mark. And the Nasdaq Composite, again, just the real outperformer in trading today, still up on the day as well. So big strength there in technology. Added to the Dow today. Salesforce.com, Amgen, and Honeywell, those three stocks now represent the at least components that measure what's happening with the digital economy, biotechnology, and industrials. Meanwhile, take a look at those versus the ones that have been removed from there. Merck, remember, still part of the Dow. Chevron still part of the Dow. Raytheon Technologies gets replaced by that Honeywell. Pfizer and ExxonMobil, those stocks on the way out of the Dow. So that's the new look. And remember, the four-for-one stock split in Apple. And then... The stock to watch this afternoon has to be Zoom Communications. Speaking of those COVID stocks, that stock, remember, up 3% today ahead of the big earnings report after the closing bell. 235% gain for the last year. And by the way, Kel, just to give you some idea, the 52-week low back over here, we are now up roughly 400% in that particular stock. So talk about a stock that's emblematic of the COVID economy. Check Zoom Communications earnings after the closing bell today, Kel. Back over If they're not doing that call on Zoom... They're, they're missing a huge opportunity, Dom. I, I think they should, <laughs> they, just from a branding they perspective. <laughs> they must be. We'll see. Dom, thank you, sir. You got it. J.P. Morgan's market guru, who called the bottom in March, says that investors should now position themselves for a Trump victory, saying his odds are up big in the past few weeks. Billionaire investor Leon Cooperman says the president has Fed Chairman Jay Powell to thank in part for that. Mr. Powell, the chairman of the Federal Reserve Board, Basically, that the president, I might add, wanted to fire on more than one occasion, has given investors a long-term put by promising to keep rates near zero for an extended period of time. This has led to a dramatic expansion of market valuations. And frankly, the president uh, should kiss the chairman on all four cheeks, in my opinion. Was that a Zoom back? I don't think that was. Couldn't even tell. It's beautiful. Uh, anyway, for more, I'm joined by Brian Belsky. He's the chief investment strategist at BMO Capital Markets. And David Balin is chief investment officer at City Private Bank. Good to have you both here this afternoon. 
Brian, I'll start with you. As Peter Bookvar likes to point out, we've got the CNN Fear and Greed Index well into euphoria territory now. So what happens if this keeps going? Well, thanks for having us. We actually just increased our number, actually reinstated our, our year-end number. We were at 3,400, and now we're at 3,650. You know, a rising tide uh, type of market, not only on, on, on the momentum, but also sentiment. Now, sentiment indexes, uh, all this fancy stuff that people put out, the best gauge of what sentiment is is actually talking to clients, Kelly. Mm. And the majority of clients that we talk to, if I talk to 10 clients a day, which I've already talked to more than that uh, this morning, considering our our new market numbers, nine of them don't, don't like the market, nine of them hate the market, and they continue to come up with all these different ideas. And we really believe that the market on March 23rd, which we wrote the report on March 23rd, and we're on your network March 23rd talking about the market's bottom and the subsequent rally, we really believe that that was the control-alt-delete of the bull market hmm. to reset and enter the second half of what we continue to call a 20-year bull market. Okay, David, are, are you as optimistic? And I wonder if either one of you are speaking to the kind of retail traders that are in large part driving this rally because they're younger. Maybe they're on Robinhood. They're not talking to, you know, city private bank CIO, David. Well, first of all, I don't think that the Robinhood traders are the ones that are driving the market right now at all. I mean, they're the ones that are getting the headlines. The fundamentals are, are pretty strong, right? You have low interest rates. You've got total consumer demand in the United States above where it was in December of 2019. You've got um, an essential, you know, 88% of the of this market is recovered now to, a, to areas, you know, where it was before the pandemic and mobility is up and things like that. We're also seeing an extraordinary amount of consumer demand and an absence of supply, whether you're trying to buy a, you know, a, a mouse, you're trying to buy a car, you're trying to buy a bicycle, you're trying to buy a home appliance, you're going to be waiting for it. And part of this is the economic stimulus that's taking place in the United States, but it's also global. Ten to twelve trillion dollars that's going to drive the global economy and then has a multi multiplier effect for next year. So we're really not looking at this as a moment in time, but rather a new economic cycle, one that began at the end of March and is going to really accelerate into 2021. Yeah. And that's why the uh, the estimates that we were just talking about, 3,600, 3,650, are certainly possible. Sure. The way for investors to make money now, though, is to rotate from technology into the areas of the market that are going to benefit in the future. This could be Latin America, small and medium-sized industrial companies. It could also be certain areas of the market that are simply undervalued. You know, Even growth at a reasonable price stocks right now are really well undervalued compared to the technology stocks. Yeah, well, that, and that's fair enough. But Brian, I guess in both of you are, are bullish and constructive long term for all of those reasons. But every now and then, Brian, a rally needs its own control alt delete, its own reset. Right. And we haven't had one in a while. And, and we've seen we you know, we saw it last expansion. We had a lot of really sharp pullbacks and followed by a lot of really sharp recoveries. I mean, at some point we are due for one. But your, your, your basic message, people, is don't panic if it happens. But I wonder if if for clients it's like, well, you could wait to get in at that point. Well, first of all, you know, it's excessively difficult to time yeah. those types of pullbacks, Kelly. I'd say that, number one. Number two, the way that we're looking at it and why we have a 12-month target of 3850 is that actually when fundamentals start getting better, 
And when earnings growth broadens out to the majority of sectors, because remember, when growth is scarce, growth outperforms, and that's why tech, communication services, and consumer discretionary are doing so great. Actually, when the fundamentals start to improve, the Fed will have to start its speak in terms of what's going to happen in 2022. The bond market's going to get ahead of that. And that's, I think, when we could see a lot more volatility, just when things are looking better. Uh, and in the, the actualities of numbers, so the second half, really the fourth quarter of 2021 heading into 2022, is, I think, when things could get bumpier. But there's no doubt that things can't go up forever. There is going to be some volatility. People are worried about COVID still in the election. I think those, would op- those actually would be opportunistic, fearful buying opportunities. David, final question, then, speaking of the election, and again, to go back to this point about Trump's reelection odds, you know, August was a strong month. The last couple of weeks have been strong, and plenty of people have cited his improving odds as part of that. But is that something that you'd put a lot of credence in, uh, both in the last few weeks, if it swings back towards Biden, then if it swings back towards Trump? I mean, we're we talking kind of four or five percentage points in one direction or the other, or are these a much bigger deal that investors should be focused on? Yeah, well, I think that, you know, after each of the um, conventions, you've seen a bounce both for the Democrats and now you're seeing a bounce for the Republicans. And this is typical. We'll have to see what's going to happen over the course of the next month. The uh, race to watch is actually not the presidential race. It's going to really be the race for the Senate and whether or not in the event that there's a Democratic uh, uh, election of of a President Biden, whether or not there's going to be a a corresponding change in the the Congress. And if that's true, that would be a very, very big, um, a very, very big swing for the country. to, you know, in terms of investment positioning for the election, however, when you really look at these time, these periods and what happens right in January after a new president is installed, if there is one, that's really when you have further momentum in the market and further in momentum in value stocks. Hmm. And we think that that's going to be a story between now, really, and the end of the first quarter of 2021. And so we want our clients to be positioned in areas like emerging markets, Brazil and Mexico. We want them to be in these small and medium-sized companies. And we think there's a lot of money to be made by positioning your uh, your portfolio for growth of the basic industrial companies and even financials that will benefit, you know, in the event that there's a steeper interest rate curve. So there's a lot that one can do in this market to really improve the portfolio for clients. Right. And City Private Bank is really advising clients not to have a lot of cash and to be fully invested during this period of time. Yeah. So unlike some who say you have to wait for a vaccine to, to make that rotation, you're saying you can go ahead and do it now. Gentlemen, thank That's you right. both. It's been a pleasure. Brian Belsky and David Balin talking about this market. Now, space is known as the final frontier, but could it also be the final luxury frontier? My next guest is betting that consumer space travel will be a high-end must-have and says Virgin Galactic is the way to play it. The stock is up 52% this year. It has yet to take a single flight. So why now? With me is Oliver Chen, the managing director and senior analyst at Cowan. And Oliver, what is a retail analyst doing with this Virgin Galactic stock? Hi, Kelly. Great being here. So we really see the Virgin Galactic opportunity in space travel as a luxury experience. And luxury is really moving in this direction. Keep in mind, tickets are $250,000. So to pay for this experience, it takes a lot of money. And retail is moving towards this experiential movement, once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. But we've leveraged a lot of what Cowan has to offer with our aerospace team as well as airline team to really break down the risk and the opportunities. The survey we completed speaks to a lot of interest in the marketplace as well as engagement. And rethinking this, uh, the company has a new CEO from Disney. It's a lot about the opportunity before and after the flight as well and rethinking this service as a great experience Mm. and a membership program as well. 
membership program. Yeah, everything's a membership program these days. But so tell me about the financials. Uh, you guys have crunched the numbers. I'm curious what numbers. And you've come out uh, with a $22 price target, which is only 26% upside from here. So, you know, this is not kind of a going out on our skis, making a huge 10-year, you know, this is things going to quadruple kind of call. Uh, what, what, is the, what are these forecasts all predicated on? Yeah, Kelly, so our forecast is based on two parts. It's a discounted cash flow model in terms of the commercial space flight opportunity. We're valuing that part of the business at $12, and $10 comes from the high-speed point-to-point supersonic hypersonic travel, which is a ways off. This is a very high-risk speculative idea with respect to that this company does not generate revenue. So what we're looking for is the generation of revenue to occur in 2022, 2023, and really ramping up as the company adds more spaceships. But there are a number of catalysts, risks, and opportunities. Specifically, we have to start generating revenue with Sir Richard Branson flying next year and then commercial spaceflight commencing for passengers at the end of next year. Yeah, well, so that, those are catalysts we look for. And, and as you look at this investment, it, it carries all these risks as we monitor um, safety as well. Sure. But I, I'm also curious, as your frontier expands, Oliver, I mean, if we're putting Virgin Galactic in as a retail stock now, why not electric vehicle companies and, you know, you name it? I mean, what else might yeah. be in the entertainment and luxury and, and fundamentally retail basket going forward? Well, what's really fascinating is Virgin Galactic combines the Virgin brand, which has tremendous awareness. There's 600 astronauts who have signed up for this opportunity, and it really integrates vertical integration as well as technology. So it's a lot of different aspects coming together in one, but it's a lifestyle choice. It's an experiential choice. It's a luxury choice in terms of the opportunity ahead. And we love luxury companies like LVMH as well as Virgin Galactic. And then we also love value. Think about Costco and others, but the world is changing, and we see a lot of creative partnerships. Virgin Galactic has partnerships with Rolls-Royce, Under Armour, Boeing, NASA as well. So you're seeing the convergence of a lot. Um, you're also seeing super premium stocks and ideas work, in our opinion, as mm-hmm. well as deep value. Um, so premium. thinking about this and the changes ahead and what's happening with the consumer, uh, the luxury consumer is still there, and it's quite global. Yeah. Oliver, thanks for joining us today to explain it and talk a little bit more about it. We appreciate it. Good seeing you, Kelly. Thank you. Oliver Chen on Virgin Galactic. Coming up, morally bankrupt. That's what McDonald's is calling its ousted CEO as it sues for the return of his compensation. We have the latest on this unusual corporate drama and what it could mean for other companies and executives in the future. Plus, airline stocks are in the red today as United makes a bold move that could cost them and force the rest of the industry to follow suit. United's down about 3%. We'll tell you what they're doing. Plus, another day, another SPAC, and this time it's for potato chips and pretzels. You can probably guess it. That's coming up. This is The Exchange on CNBC. Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently and still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. 
Welcome back. The drama at the Golden Arches continues today as McDonald's fires back against former CEO Steve Easterbrook and a saga that's been playing out for months. Easterbrook was promoted to McDonald's CEO in 2015 after working there for decades. Four years later, in October of 2019, allegations emerged that Mr. Easterbrook had a consensual, non-sexual relationship with an employee, a violation of company policy at the time. McDonald's provided no other details on the relationship, but they fired Mr. Easterbrook a month later without cause, but with a very hefty severance package currently valued around $64 million. That's according to the latest data from exec compensation firm Equilar. So that's what played out in the past. Fast forward to last month when the company learned of three more alleged relationships, these sexual in nature. Now we're talking about the summer of 2020 here. In a rare move, McDonald's sued Mr. Easterbrook, claiming he alleged, uh, alleging he committed fraud and destroyed evidence during its internal probe of his behavior. The company is seeking to claw back that massive severance package now. Today, McDonald's came out swinging in response to a motion from Easterbrook to dismiss, calling the former CEO, quote, morally bankrupt and adding, quote, Easterbrook's suggestion that his lies notwithstanding, McDonald's got a good enough deal by ridding itself of him has no legal merit. The stock had a nice rally under Easterbrook, up about 90% since he took over. Investors rewarded the company following his push to modernize and digitize the store. So what happens next? Will this set a precedent for other companies to sue ousted CEOs? With me now, our own Kate Rogers and NBC News and MSNBC legal analyst Danny Savalos talk more about this. Kate, I'll start with you. What's the latest uh, from Easterbrook who and how is he framing his case against McDonald's here? So Easterbrook obviously is filing this motion to dismiss. He basically says that he didn't cover up his own evidence well enough and that McDonald's investigators should have discovered it when they did their audit, uh, when they were looking into the relationship that was uncovered that kind of led to his firing. But as you mentioned, Kelly, the language here today so strong. You rarely see a big corporation, particularly McDonald's, come out swinging like this, morally bankrupt. A lot of the terminology that they're using, very, very strong words here and saying absolutely not. Uh, we do have a case here. He violated our company policy values and they're looking to get some of that severance back. Wow, Danny, let me bring you in on that point. Um, do you think McDonald's will get its severance back? And are there, is there precedent uh, for a corporate case like this? There's not a lot of precedent for a case like this, but Easterbrook's uh, defense is essentially that, okay, even if I lied to you about those relationships, you, should, McDonald's, should have conducted a better investigation of my email account. These allegations right. by McDonald's own admission are astonishing. And I'm reading them directly from the pleadings. And they're saying essentially that, look, when we first conducted our investigation, he handed over his phone. We looked at his phone and everything that's on the phone. We gave it back to him because we didn't find anything out about these three other people. So anybody who has worked at a company, has a phone and an email account knows that there's a server that those emails go through, and that server belongs to McDonald's. So essentially, Easterbrook's uh, defense is you should have known, you shouldn't have listened to me. Mm -hmm. You should have looked at the server and found out this stuff on your own. Shame on you. I should keep my money. Do you think that's going to have standing, Danny, and, and allow him to avoid having to return this compensation? I think his biggest concern is whether or not, if in fact he did lie to deceive investigators, that may override the fact that they absolutely should have been checking the server. What, who in their right mind would rely on just what's on the phone itself, especially if, as is alleged, some of these, uh, uh, I guess, these sexual photographs were being sent to the McDonald's 
email account. Uh, on both sides, there appears to be, by the allegations, some galactic misunderstandings of how modern technology work on both sides. And what, mm -hmm. Kate, is McDonald's doing about all of this now? Uh, so David Fairhurst was their chief people officer, head of HR. He was ousted right after Easterbrook was last fall. They now have a new HR chief people officer, Heidi Capozzi. She came over from Boeing, and she's really, uh, according to the company, kind of taking a top-down approach with what's going on there, their hiring practices, and also kind of looking at how they evaluate employee complaints. When Chris Kempchinski, the new CEO, took over, uh, there was a lot of emphasis on company values. What makes McDonald's stands for and what they're looking for as a culture moving forward. One of those things is kind of speaking up when you're seeing something that doesn't align with the company values and they continue to hammer that home. So you can see that the company certainly wants to pivot. They've got someone new in HR, but the Wall Street Journal reporting that they are looking into David Fairhurst, his uh, tenure right. as chief HR officer there and, and what he did and potentially uh, him making women feel uncomfortable reportedly, according to the journal, at certain company uh, events and gatherings and how those were reported and evaluated. D uh, Danny, quick final question. There, the only kind of ex previous example of this we could find was if you look back to Disney, what happened with Michael Ovitz. He got $140 million in shareholder suit after he left after, I think it was about a year, year and a half. But I don't think they succeeded in getting that money back. So if McDonald's succeeds here, does that set a big precedent for other companies to claw back compensation? Or do you think this uniquely hangs on this issue over whether they did a thorough enough job in ousting him? No, not necessarily. This may not be precedent because it's so much governed by the language of the contracts that they entered into. And in this case, uh, McDonald's is alleging that uh, Easterbrook released them from liability, but they are not released from going after Easterbrook. Easterbrook likely denies that. But the point is, in cases like this, it's hard to say there are any cases that are precedential because these severance agreements are so controlling as to between the parties. And McDonald's made a deliberate choice here. They could have tried to fire him for cause, but they didn't want the trouble of the litigation, so they negotiated this settlement. The real question mm -hmm. is whether or not, under the terms of this agreement, who, if anyone, breached fascinating. Thank you both for helping to kind of break this story down for us. Uh, our own Kate Rogers and Danny Savalos appreciate it very much. Still ahead, can the post office deliver on its promise to send ballots on time? CNBC investigates a look at what was uncovered straight ahead. Plus products you can't get your hands on, including this company who makes something much needed for work and study from home. The stock up 90% in six months. It's the first name in our out of stock series. We'll talk to the CEO ahead. Canva presents unexplained appearances. It was an ordinary workday until... That presentation appeared out of thin air. Also, it's eerily on brand. Wait, did that agenda just write itself? Words appear, making this unexplainable case... Unexplainable? It's Canva's AI tools. I can generate slides and words in seconds. Really? <clears throat> the real mystery is why I'm only learning this now. Canva.com. Designed for work. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. 
Welcome back to The Exchange. Here's your markets right now. The S&P just turned back into positive territory. It's up about half a point right now. But again, the story is not today. The story is how we're closing out August, a monster month for these averages. Best month or best August for the S&P, I think, since at least 1986. Now, that's just because it tends to be seasonally weak. So this is a standout. Of course, in the year of the pandemic, nothing behaves the way that it quote unquote should. Dow's down 215 points right now. NASDAQ mirror image of that up 100 points. So the Dow sitting in the red today, despite a major shakeup of its components. The Apple stock split Tesla happening today as well. Uh, quick check on the sectors behind me. I'll come back to the Tesla story, but technology is back in the leadership. Not surprisingly, you could guess this based on what the major averages were doing. Energy, industrials, financials, those are back in the bottom three positions. So let's talk about that Tesla stock split. It's higher today. The shares are, of course, that's the only direction they go, right? Uh, they begin trading uh, after their four for one split today. So $487 is the price there. And Tesla is up another 10% today. The the stock has skyrocketed more than 70% since announcing that stock split a few weeks back. Shares of Beyond Meat are also higher on an upgrade to neutral from Sell at Citigroup. Uh, they're pointing out that the stock's underperformance since July and better than expected sales growth should be a tailwind. Beyond shares up 4%, they're at 136. And Amazon hitting another record high, more than 2% gain today after it said it has FAA approval to fly its prime delivery drone. So look up in the skies. Amazon is up 2.5% to get this. $3,483 a share. Let's get over to Sue Herrera now for our CNBC News update. Sue? Good to see you, Kelly. Here's what's happening at this hour, everyone. A setback for Michael Flynn. An appeals court on Monday denied a bid by former National Security Advisor Michael Flynn to immediately end the criminal case against him. The D.C. Court of Appeals denied Flynn's request for an emergency order, directing the judge hearing the case to grant the DOJ's request for dismissal. The World Health Organization said on Monday that authorization of COVID-19 vaccines requires a great deal of seriousness and reflection for individual countries. The WHO Director General emphasized the need for countries to get the virus under control before reopening their economies. The more control countries have over the virus, the more they can open up. Opening up without having control is a recipe for disaster. It's not one size fits all. It's not all or nothing. And Japanese venture company SkyDrive has unveiled that beauty. It's an experimental flying car that can carry one person. The vehicle is operated autonomously. It can fly at up to 60 miles per hour. And the car can take off and land on an area the size of two parking spaces. <laughs> and in the big cities in Japan, there's not a lot of room, so that's one of the reasons they've been pioneering that car. I will not be one of the first to get in it, however, no, Kel. I'm never getting in it, but we've got Amazon <laughs> delivery drones. We've exactly. got Japanese flying cars. Uh, yep, technology. Either, yeah, I was saying, I don't know, exciting, terrifying, a little bit of both. <laughs> Sue, thank you very much. You got it. Sue Herrera. As the coronavirus does continue to spread globally, more Americans are working, learning, and shopping from home than ever before. Now many are considering the choice of voting remotely. How reliable is the Postal Service in that effort? NBC television stations decided to put it to the test. Here's Kayla Tausche. As Americans consider who will get their vote, Millions are weighing how to cast their ballot and whether they can trust the messenger. 
So this month, 12 NBC-owned stations and NBCLX conducted an experiment, sending 155 first-class letters across a dozen major metropolitan markets. 88% of the letters arrived within three business days, the U.S. Postal Service's advertised time frame. Another 10% arrived within a week. Just two letters, 1.3%, are still missing. All the letters were addressed to individuals at home. They were mailed from multiple locations, some sent within the same city, some sent to people in other cities. The postal regulator said in the June quarter, 92.4% of all first-class letters nationwide arrived within two days, a faster rate than NBC's study in August. These letters carry standard postage. Welcome, everybody. Postmaster General Louis DeJoy, under fire for eliminating resources ahead of the election, has promised ballots would be marked priority. The Postal Service is fully capable and committed to delivering the nation's ballots securely and on time. Union leaders say without overtime, without high-speed sorters, and without some 40,000 employees who have quarantined, manpower is limited. If the mail is there to be worked and you just arbitrarily reduce hours, then guess what? The mail doesn't get worked. A report from the USPS Inspector General found major issues in Wisconsin, where voting by mail spiked 440 percent during its April primary. The IG said tubs of absentee ballots were misplaced, returned, or lacked postmarks. Watchdogs say it's a cautionary tale. Not only was this a problem in places like Milwaukee, but it's a harbinger for potential uh, nationwide issues in the delivery of ballots as the demand for mail-in voting increases because of the COVID-19 crisis. Nationwide, some 190 million Americans are eligible to vote by mail this fall. A spokesperson for the U.S. Postal Service referred us to public comments from DeJoy and the organization and added, quote, the Postal Service has more than enough capacity, including collection boxes and processing equipment, to handle all election mail this year, which is predicted to amount to less than 2 percent of total mail volume from mid-September to Election Day. NBC stations plan to test the timeliness of the mail again in September and October ahead of the November 3rd election. Kelly? Kayla, were there any trends in the places where the mail took the longest? Well, in the roughly 10% of letters that took about a week to arrive, perhaps unsu unsurprisingly, most of those were long haul. They were sent to other cities, but there were still about six letters uh, mailed within the same city that took about a week to arrive. So what experts say is if you don't know how long your ballot is going to take to arrive, either drop it off at your polling place in person or give it about a week to do so. Yeah, at least. Kayla, appreciate it very much. Kayla Tausche there. A 100-year-old snack spack? Unpinning a multi-million dollar lease and United changes course on fees. All that and more coming up in today's Rapid Fire. The Exchange will be back with all of that right after this. Welcome back. It's that time. Let's catch you up on a few stories that should be on your radar today. It's Rapid Fire, and here to break down the headlines are Dominic Chu, Leslie Picker, and Robert Frank. Welcome, everybody. First up, my personal favorite story of the day. After nearly a century as a private, family-owned company, the snack maker Utz. We've all seen the potato chips, the pretzels. They're iconic. They're making a public debut through a SPAC. They just completed a merger with Collier Creek Holdings on Friday, began trading today under the ticker UTZ. How's it going? Yeah, it's up about 8%. The CEO, uh, 
is it Dean Diane Lissett was on Squawk Box this morning said going public this way allows him to with the up influx the of the capital from uh, combination from this back uh, uh, going public we're really going to uh, clean up our balance sheet to a really uh, great position and as we go forward I mean we think we have a ton of organic opportunity just to grow geographically or uh, into some of the subcategories that we're not uh, as robust in that we should be more robust in. And their sales, Leslie, were up 11 percent during the pandemic. They benefited from uh, some of that sort of stockpiling trend. Um, why why this background? I mean, this is an exp- they're, they're a long established company. This isn't a speculative EV company. Exactly. That's that's exactly the point here. And, and I, for one, am certainly victim to the whole sto- stocking up on potato chips and other things uh, to get me through this pandemic. However, what's interesting here is that these discussions actually started last July before the pandemic uh, was even in most people's uh, uh, mindset. So uh, it's one of those kind of counterpoints to all of the people who say going public via SPAC is a quick process, not always. Uh, but for them, it makes a lot of sense, especially if you're a family-owned business, you're, you're storied, you've been at it for a long time. It sounds like their real incentive here is to clean up their balance sheet. This gives them a really easy access hmm. to the capital markets to do that. Dom, I still feel like I'm missing something. I guess my point is this is a company that has revenues. It has earnings. It has a history. I mean, the current <laughs> CEO is, I think, the founder's grandson's son-in-law. Like, they have a great story, a well-known product. Why Isn't a SPAC more expensive? I mean, why not just even do a direct listing? Well, I'm not sure if it's more expensive or not. I mean, every structure is going to be slightly different and the underwriting fees that go along with it. But the traditional route to an IPO has always been costly. It's always been more complicated. It's always exposed the companies and its underwriters and all the clients involved to a lot more scrutiny on both sides of the equation. So if you're taking a look at the SPAC route, this is just emblematic of the paradigm change, right? If, if a lot of companies can do, here's what I would say. If you're a SPAC, Right. And you have a star manager who's raised a good amount of money on their own. They've basically taken the place of an underwriter. So they are, in essence, the underwriter of this whole process. You don't need the banks to go out and do it. So in many ways, this could be a cost issue, but it could just be a way of saying, you know what? If we've got a good manager, we believe in the product, we give them the blank check, they will go out and make the right decisions. And in this case here, Utz is probably one where they say, hey, if not now, when? Markets at record highs. Consumer products are huge. Right. We've had a great quarter. So, Robert, should we be thinking? about the SPACs almost like Shark Tank, you know, and this is Kevin O'Leary, like they're saying, you know, we have the chance to partner with Collier and they're going to kind of lend some of their investing expert. I mean, is that a little bit of the dynamic here as well? Yeah, definitely. But what's interesting about this is the family is holding on to more than 50% of their holding. They are cashing out uh, 10%. But this is a family that's fourth generation, as you said. They've held this company for over 100 years. And the fact that they're staying in with so much equity is a good sign. They need cash to continue buying these smaller brands, get scale, and maybe one day get sold to whether it's Pepsi or Warren Buffett or somebody. So this gives them the cash to do that, but it's still gonna be a family controlled business. And that I think is a very good sign for investors. Yeah, that, fair enough. And again, I, it just makes me feel like a kid again when I see all those Utz brands and- Cheese anyway. balls. Yeah, the cheese <laughs> balls, that's right. Potato sticks. Yeah. They should have done a road show. Anyway, (laughs) let's move on. Another sign we could be witnessing the end of office buildings as we know them. Pinterest paid nearly $90 million to scrap its lease on a nearly 500,000 square foot to be built office in San Francisco. Just the latest indicator of the staying power guys of remote working. Facebook, Twitter and Apple among a host of tech firms all embracing the trend. Silicon Valley 
could look very different in the years to come. Dom, I'm going to you because I know California is near and dear to your heart. But also because, look, as the Stanford study just pointed out, 42 percent of the country is working from home right now. Pinterest moves suggest these changes are going to be lasting for quite a bit longer. I mean, it won't be Silicon Valley. It won't be any valley. It won't be. I mean, this whole theme is about remote working. It's about being able to do a job in technology specifically that doesn't require you to be in an office. And we've been talking so long about this notion that the covid pandemic accelerates trends. Well, one of those trends has been you don't necessarily have to be in. You don't have to be in Palo Alto or Mountain View or even New York City. The, the idea here, if you can actually get folks who want to live in Memphis, Tennessee or Lexington, Kentucky or Charlotte, North Carolina, and pay them a good amount of money to live in those locations with lower costs of living, this could be huge in attracting new talent. And for Pinterest, it might be a small price to pay to break some of these leases if they know they can get the best people and working from areas that yeah. are not necessarily Silicon Valley. Picker, what would you add to that? Well, I think you have to wonder, you know, if you do start to see this kind of tech diaspora across the country and you're paying these people pretty high wages, uh, what does that do to the cost of living? Does it increase it? I don't know. I mean, it's a big country, maybe not, but I think it's something that, you know, would be interesting to look into whether or not we do see uh, this impact of staying from no, home if it does have staying power. It's a great point. Look at what we've seen this do? before. I mean, in Seattle in the 90s, people were already mad at Californians for coming right. in and, and bidding. You know, they're saying real estate here is crazy expensive. I mean, can you imagine how they feel about 2020? Just wait till these towns I have the influx of San Francisco workers who are ready to put their salaries to work. Uh, that's an interesting point. All right, let's talk about the Mets, uh, shall we? Uh, sources <laughs> are telling our own David Faber today, drumroll please, that billionaire hedge fund manager Steve Cohen is in exclusive talks to buy the New York Mets, and the two sides are expected to reach a deal in the next few days. The new deal is expected to be at least $2.6 billion, Robert, which is interesting because that's the same price he offered to pay for the team late last year in a deal that didn't pan out. He reportedly beat out other bidders, including power couple, J, do we call him J-Rod, Alex Rodriguez and Jennifer Lopez. The Mets are expected to lose upwards of $100 million this year, and Cohen will easily be the richest owner of an MLB team, Robert. Yeah, and that's the important point. It's going to be hard to overstate how rich and how important he's going to be to this league. You know, he is richer than the first three current richest MLB uh, owners combined right now. He's worth some, something close between 14 and $15 billion. And yes, he's going to have to fund some losses in the first year, maybe $100, $200 million. But, you know, this is a guy who spends $155 million on a Picasso, $165 million on a Lichtenstein painting. So, you know, this is like his monthly art budget just to fund this entire team for a year. So this is really going to change the Mets. It's going to change the entire sort of scale of wealth in the league. And and I think it's going to improve the Mets and probably force a lot of other owners like the Yankees to start paying up as well. So no COVID penalty, Dom. No COVID penalty here, but what, what's curious about, I mean, just listening to Robert talk about what it's going to be like for Cohen to be an owner in the Major League Baseball kind of arena, I think to myself, David Tepper, right? He owns the Carolina Panthers, made a lot of waves, a big splash when he did so, but he owns the team outright. 
for a guy like perhaps Steve Cohen to, to own a team like that and have a real hand in operations is probably going to be one of the things that makes him feel like this is worth the money, even if the losses are there, because you have a franchise. It is yours. And you can make this thing. If you're a fan since you were a kid, you can make this into a great, great team. This could be one of those legacy items beyond what you were just thinking about with regard to your hedge fund career. So I think this is great. I just feel like we've been here before. Cohen's been kind of around the Mets for so long now that that I just hope something kind of happens one way or the other. Yeah. And if he doesn't make him into a great team, then what? I mean, then. You know, it's just, we just assume, right, that it's got to pan out, but it's still going to be a lot of work. But you know, throw enough money at it. All right, finally, United Airlines is announcing it'll no longer charge a $200 fee to change domestic flights. They say the move is permanent and part of a push to serve customers better as they navigate the uh, COVID pandemic. Airlines seemingly desperate to get anyone to fly these days. The TSA said airport traffic is hovering around 30% of last year's levels. United shares are lower on this news, down about 3%, and still down uh, about 60% on the year. I don't know, silver lining, Leslie, of the pandemic? I just think it's funny that they're trying to get more people to fly by saying you can cancel your ticket for free. It seems kind of counterintuitive to what you would expect uh, these airlines to do. Southwest has been doing it for years. It certainly accords people more flexibility when they're booking to say, okay, well, I don't really know what the situation is, so I'll book it now, see what happens later. I don't know. I feel like airlines could use the additional revenue, but I, for one, am not personally a fan of those change fees. Yeah, who is? Everybody <laughs> hates them. And the fact, Dom, that Southwest did away with them tells you that, you know, because they, they're trying to be customer focused. Even Southwest shares, by the way, down about two and a half percent. Remember, Southwest is a budget airline, right? So you're talking well, about a full service carrier. And by the way, those those change fee nixes only happen with full fare economy or more expensive tickets, not necessarily those ones that are kind of like the, bar the, the bargain basement ones that American United would put out there. So this is not exactly a huge game changer. Not that many seats are priced at those levels anyway, Kel. So I, I'm kind of curious to see how this all pans Robert out. Robert, put a final word on it. Yeah, it's about time. I mean, Southwest did it. And like most retailers, they provide easy refunds, easy exchanges. It's time for airlines to do the same thing. That model wins. I totally agree. Thank you all today. Dominic Chu, Leslie Picker, Robert Frank. We really appreciate it for Rapid Fire. Coming up, while school may be back in session virtually, a new study finds most college students are back on campus physically, and that has college towns torn. We'll dig into it next. Welcome back. After suspending classes for two weeks due to a COVID outbreak, Notre Dame announced students will be returning to campus on Wednesday. And a new study shows they won't be the only ones, as many students will learn virtually, but not necessarily at home. Steve Leesman is here now to explain. Steve? Yeah, back to school, uh, Kelly. A new study with implications for the nation's health and its economy, finding that more than three-quarters of college students are Back on Campus, the study by Burbio, which is an online aggregator of community and school calendars, found 78% of the four-year residential colleges have summoned students back to campus. Julie Roach, Burbio, CEO, Burbio co-founder, said in a release, quote, despite challenges to managing health services and the logistics of everything from moving in to dining, colleges have made a clear commitment to getting students back on campus. The percentage is far larger than many would have thought because it includes the many schools that have canceled that have called students back but are teaching both virtually and in person or some combination thereof. This is a positive for college towns economically. They're desperate for the commerce, but residents are also scared of the potential COVID transmission. It also raises the potential for students to bring the virus back 
home. A New York Times survey last week finding 26,000 cases and 64 deaths on colleges and universities around the country. That includes headline-grabbing outbreaks like almost 1,000 cases at the University of Alabama at Birmingham and 835 at UNC Chapel Hill. The Burbio study finding that in 27 of the 51 states plus the District of Columbia, 100% of schools have called students back to campus. The percentage is weighed down mostly by the decision at many schools in California to keep students home. For better or worse, the study also finds 60% of schools will send their students home from Thanksgiving until January, Kelly. I mean, it, Steve, it does seem weird to say, okay, we're going to call you back, but you don't have to really come to class. It's going to be virtual. I mean, it just seems like a recipe for partying and for problems. And it may not even be the wrong call. It, it just it just seems odd. Everything about it. And then having sports still go on. I mean, it's so it just it all seems very odd. And sports not go and sports not go on and be charged the, the athletic fee. Right. Uh, Kelly, it is a wrenching story to report here. I read numerous letters of kids from school that are complaining about everything from the tuition costs to being in, in feeling like they're in prison. Um, I don't know if it's any consolation or, or, or worth uh, reporting, but my son decided to defer this semester. Oh, absolutely. He was not going back to college. And, and I don't, he had, full, he had my full blessing to do that if that's what he wanted to do, either way he wanted to do it. But the stories about the virtual learning are not good, and the stories are about the, the other side of it, about being in class, are not good either. Yeah. Steve, thank you, sir. We appreciate it. Steve Fleisman with the latest. Still ahead, shares of Logitech climbing more than 56% this year and 130% from their 52-week low. The stock is hot, but one of its products is in such high demand the consumers can't get them. We'll talk to the CEO about it next. Welcome back. As people adjust to COVID-19, consumers are seeing very specific products go out of stock. This week, we're taking a closer look at what happens when Econ 101 collides with a pandemic. And we're kicking things off with webcams. How crazy is demand? Logitech, a leading manufacturer of computer accessories, saw a 116% surge in webcam sales last quarter. And it doesn't see demand slowing down anytime soon. The shares are up 4% today, 94% in the past six months. And joining me now is Logitech CEO and President Bracken Darrell. Bracken, it's good to have you. Welcome. Great to be here. Thanks, Kelly. I assume you're using one of your products right now? Of course I am. <laughs> the, I'm using multiple products right now, not just the webcams, but a microphone and a mouse and a keyboard. That's true. And you guys make the whole suite. So uh, tell me what's still in stock. What is there no way people are going to get their hands on uh, for quite some time? You know, a few a few weeks ago or months ago, I would have said, you know, there's no way you're going to get hands on your hands on a lot of things. But now we're really coming back in stock and everything. We still, you know, we're we're kind of hand to mouth on webcam still, but we're getting there. And you'll we're a little tight this quarter, but I think if you want one now, you can find one. Uh, we're still very tight on blue microphones, uh, which these are super. If you I have them, you've ever seen. Yeah, show us. Yep, absolutely. This is it, and uh, they're really, really great. So we're still very tight on blue microphones, but that's coming back too. So overall, I think we're going to be in pretty good shape over the next few weeks and month and a month or so in everything. Tell me real quickly about your supply chain. Where is the stuff coming from, and where are you running into bottlenecks? We know that UPS, FedEx are doing holiday surcharges. You know, what's it like right now, and you know, what countries or production areas of the world are an issue? Well, we make almost everything we sell in Asia, either in China or in the countries around China. And, uh, and the bottlenecks have really been, for the most part, are, the most difficult supply problems have been in component supply. But we have great 
uh, in very long-term relationships, most of the key component suppliers, we've been able to get to them. And we've been able to unlock those that demand. We have increased our, our own capacity for making these things dramatically across the board. So it's been uh, exciting. Are you pushing up prices? And what happens when you watch this kind of gray market come up online where, you know, the, I mean, those suppliers know how to get stuff out there at a really high markup when people need it, this stuff fast? How do you deal with that? We are not raising our list prices. We, we just uh, really, especially in the beginning of the pandemic, uh, when people needed our, our products to communicate with their loved ones or, or to, to teach or to, to learn, we just weren't going to increase prices. We're not going to increase prices. We really helped firm. Uh, it, it did happen where you, have, you could find webcams at a crazy price online, and there's not much we can do about it. We certainly reported it to the, the retailers and detailers who had that happening, but uh, there's not much we can do about it. Yeah. What is the biggest mistake people make when buying or using one of your, you know, a webcam in general? You know, the biggest mistake people make is not using a separate webcam because I know I'm sounding like I'm promoting, but <laughs> there are great embedded webcams, but separated webcams give a lot of advantages, including the fact that they tend to be higher quality. Uh, you also can move them around. I can pick this up and I can show someone. I can show you right now. Instead of doing what I did, I can show you my microphone. <laughs> um, I could also put it over if I was drawing something. I can put it over and show it. So using a, a separate webcam is really an advantage. And I know that's frustrating for people who are trying to get one of ours and couldn't. But they're coming back into supply now. Yeah, well, we appreciate the update, Bracken. Of course, I uh, wish you the best uh, as this continues. And thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me, Kelly. Bracken Darrell is the CEO and president of Logitech, kicking off our out-of-stock series this week. That does it for us here on The Exchange. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.